Hi, how are you doing? It's a grey morning. It rained a little while ago and the ground's still damp. Today I'm going to get on the Duchess and cycle a couple of miles to a nearby abandoned World War II airfield. There are 32 of them here in Suffolk and you can still see them on the maps. Faint scars on the landscape. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. From now until October the 5th, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 25 of The Stop and Light of Things. Airfield after a short but fairly effortful ride on the Duchess. I don't mind admitting that my legs are a little bit wobbly. I can see rain sheeting down in the distance and I really hope it's not coming this way because I haven't brought any waterproofs. Never mind. This was farmland until 1942, when it was requisitioned by the Air Ministry. The land belonged to two brothers, and when the airfield was built, the rubble and hardcore came from London's bombed streets. It was mixed with shingle from the Suffolk coast, and a lot of the material was brought in by horse and cart. It was handed over to the Americans and it was operational from 1943 to 45. And when the troops left, they had a massive party in the control tower and they shot it up. So all the windows were broken and it fell into disrepair. The three runways were taken up and the land was returned to agriculture a lot of the buildings were used as farm storage. Um, there's still Nissen huts here. And the control tower has been restored. And the work was done by volunteers. It took five years. It's now a, a small museum. And it maintains contact with the veterans and their families in America. I'd love to say that was the sound of a plane. A ghost plane, perhaps. It was the sound of a scooter. The 390th bomb group flew 300 missions from here and dropped nearly 20,000 tonnes of bombs. The planes were B-17s, flying fortresses, and 146 aircraft were lost or missing in action 
740 servicemen were killed and 754 were taken as prisoners of war. When the restoration project began on the control tower, it was supported by one of the brothers who originally owned and farmed this land. I love that. He supported the museum until his death. At its peak, 3,000 people lived here. And there were drains and electricity, cables and accommodation and roads and sewers. It cost a million pounds at the time. Now there's not much. There's the control tower and some fairly shabby roads which are being taken over by weeds. And there are kestrels. Almost every time I drive across this airfield, I see them motionless, hovering. So I'm going to go for an explore. Four years ago, I was enjoying a very different landscape on holiday in rural France. And I wrote about it in my Times Nature Notebook. The Times Nature Notebook, September 2016. One of the pleasures of a holiday in rural France is the way the landscape and wildlife can feel similar enough to our own as to be decipherable and yet remain unfamiliar. The result is a subtly unheimlich feeling. No sooner do you pause to admire the bucolic rolling pastures and woods than you realise no hedgerows cross the hill's flank. And just as you recognise the familiar dink, dink, dink of a chiff-chaff, a jet-black bee the size of a Nespresso pod hoves into view. The violet carpenter bee is one of the largest in Europe, with a plumply upholstered high-shine abdomen and wings like dark smoked glass. Piloting cumbrously around the Gallic countryside, their uniform blackness and loudly whirring wings suggest an apian battlebot built by orcs, or perhaps a miniature flying version of the beast, President Obama's armoured SUV. In fact, there are gentle species whose name derives from the violet iridescence of their wings when seen in sunlight and the female's habit of creating tunnels in dead wood in which to lay their eggs. These piano-black pollinators are so much bigger than even the chunkiest of our British bumblebees that the first time you see one, it's enough to stop you in your tracks. As our climate warms, they may become a more familiar sight, though. Since 2007, there's been a small breeding colony in Leicester, with further reports elsewhere. I was keen to see a hoopoe while in France, having spotted one on a previous trip, but sadly this handsome bird, with its exotic crest of feathers, did not play ball this time. Glorying not only in their British name, a favourite with small children, but also in the agreeable Latin moniker of Upupa Ipops, they have the further distinction of harbouring Upupicola Upupe, a louse. Old vaudevillian Isabel Dixon calls the hoopoe in her poem Upupe Ipops, a dandy priest whose rare visits to our southern counties cause a flutter on the wires. True to form, when I returned from France, it was to reports on Twitter that one had been found in Bridgewater. 
the Somerset hoopoe is now being cared for by Secret World Wildlife Rescue, ready for release back into the wild, and hopefully a trip south to sunnier climes. Walking along a dead straight, well, I suppose it would have been a service road. It's quite breezy, I'm sure you can hear. Um, the tarmac under my feet is rapidly breaking up and being colonised by weeds. In the distance are some grey piles of what looks like aggregate. Um, not really sure. And there's spots of rain on the wind, which is less than ideal. I've got that slightly uneasy feeling. Not really sure if I'm allowed to be here. There's some people in the distance around some of the sheds where there are businesses. I feel quite exposed and I feel, you know, this isn't the kind of place where generally people come to walk their dogs or to have a nice stroll. So um, I feel like I should explain my presence here. All around me, I can see nature taking back the old air base. Oh, and that's a skylark. That's a skylark. Where are you? Where are you? There. One, two, five, six. <laughs> How wonderful. Skylarks. So in spring, you tend to see them singly, um, defending territories. This time of year, breeding season's over, the feeling of competition's over, and a lot of birds you start to see in flocks. Um, you know, there's the phrase, birds of a feather flock together. In fact, birds form mixed flocks often at this time of year. You get big flocks of mixed finches, but this is a small band of, of skylarks. Altogether, they were feeding on this stubble field that I'm walking past on my left. It's um, wheat stubble. And there is a, a smell of slurry in the air. I wonder if it's been um, spread with muck because I imagine there's all sorts of insects. Wow, lovely. They've, all, they've flown off now, but um, little brown skylarks. And, and that wasn't their song, of course. That was their call. Fantastic to see them all together. It's a real um, sign of autumn for me. Lovely. My guest this week is Ginny Batson. Ginny is a nature writer and ecologist, and she's the creator of Fluminism, which is an eco-philosophy of love and flow. You can find out more about it at her website, which is seasonalight.com. Ginny has an essay coming out early next year in the Anthology of Kinship, which is edited by Gavin Van Horn and Robin Wall Kimmerer. And there'll be a chapter on Fluminism in Routledge's forthcoming rewilding handbook. Ginny joins us from Herefordshire. I'm in West Hope Wood, in the heart of North Herefordshire, the place where I grew up. I think this part was clear fell to the bone about the same time I was born. You could say we grew up together, me and this wood. 
I can still smell the cider apples in the air after harvest in the valley. It's so warm. I remember after an Indian summer like this, a thunderstorm broke one evening, and my mother's little Shetland pony, Nipper, escaped from his paddock. We rushed up here in our nighties and wellies to rescue him. Lightning began to strike around us, and Nipper Houdini, like a little white spirit glimpsed through the tree trunks, slipped straight back into the safety of the paddock. We laughed until we could hardly breathe. Twelve years ago, Mum became very depressed, and she took her own life down there at our house. I found her one bright morning. There's an unnerving and blinding intensity from a lightning bolt in daylight hours. Since my father died, the house has been sold and I haven't been able to face coming back. But I'm here now and it feels good. The lightning that day fixed nitrogen from the air and it fell to the woodland floor in the rain. Bacteria and fungal threads in symbiosis helped share it around to build the very structure of the greenery turning this time of year to glowing ambers and golds. It recycled in the falling leaves, the dead, and so into the next year and the next. Despite the blinding trauma of it, Lightning brought life to all these beings here with me today. With the right help and love for my daughter and her love for me, I healed just like this would. I am burying my hand into the warmth of the leaf litter now, where I think these symbiotic relationships sustaining life, even through death, are a powerful form of love. Love manifest, flowing across space and time to reach this point and beyond. I call it fluminism. It is healing. I think critical right now for all life. We can all choose to participate, given understanding, and therein lies joy. Nipahoudini, Mum, Lightning. Our laughter, they're all still here, transcending time, transpiring in froths of old man's beard, black cherries, falling ash and oak leaves, wood mice, hazelnuts, nuthatches and sparrowhawks. The taste of more healing to come in the scent of sugar molecules and spore-laden autumnal air, life and the love. I'm hoping you can hear that incredible sound of humming. I'm passing um, some ivy and it's in flower. I don't know if you know what ivy flowers look like. They're sort of um, little green globes made of smaller globes. <laughs> Which isn't a very good description. And they have a very particular smell which some people like and some people hate. And these bees are ivy bees. And they're a recent 
incomer to this country. They arrived in 2001 and they're doing very well. They're a small bee, about the size of a honeybee. Some people mistake them for a wasp because they have a very stripy abdomen. But they're lovely and they specialise in ivy, as you can hear. They're having an absolutely fantastic time. This is the last real nectar source of the year. Ivy, it carries on right until November. And these bees specialise in it. And they nest um, individually, but often um, sort of in colonies. So, so you get lots of individual nest burrows together on a sandy bank in the sun. And there's a nest site in the village with hundreds of, of these lovely little bees buzzing around in front of the entrance holes. It's lovely to see and hear them at this time of year. And there it is, there it is, always the kestrel, always the kestrel here at the airfield. And he is hovering, or she, I can't tell at this distance. The way they hold themselves to that still point of their eyes is breathtaking, isn't it? I'm an absolute terror for quoting Gerald Manley Hopkins at people, and I'm not going to do that now because I'm pretty sure... I quoted the wind hover in an earlier episode, but he captures something of that wild grace and that, that reckless way that they tip out of their hover. And it's dropped a little lower, a little lower. Is it going to stoop? No. No stoop. <laughs> I know it's off. But in the distance, the faintest rainbow. And the wind is lifting the tops off those piles of, um, I don't know what they are. I thought they were road aggregate, but they must be lighter because there's, there's, there's something blowing off the tops of them like smoke. And here comes the sun. Whenever I see kestrels here, when I'm driving across the airfield or walking here, I never fail to think of the B-17s that also flew here. Taking up their cargo of bombs and the light, live, graceful little kestrels armed only with their talons. The sun caught its russet back as it tipped and flew off. Lovely. Gilbert White's diaries for today, September the 21st, are newsier than usual. They contain intimations of worldwide events. For one thing, he talks about a neighbour's family getting inoculated and... That would have been against smallpox. Beginning of the, the vaccines that we so desperately need today. And in 1792, he talks about the French Republic being declared. What an exciting moment it was. Although, of course, the terror was all still to come. September the 21st, 1772. Few swallows about. September the 21st, 1775. Showers, rainbow, bright. 
barley in a sad condition about Basingstoke, rams begin to pay court to the ewes. September the 21st, 1778, gathered in the large white pippins. There are now some wasps. September the 21st, 1783, stormy wind all night, which has blown down most of my apples and pears. September the 21st, 1787, vast halo around the moon. September the 21st, 1789, myriad of insects sporting in the sunbeams. September the 21st, 1790, Mrs. Clement and six of her children, four of which are to be inoculated, and Mrs. Chandler and her two children, the youngest of which is also to undergo the same operation, are retired to Hartley Great House. Servants and all, some of which are to be inoculated also. They make 14 in a family. September the 21st, 1792. On this day, monarchy was abolished at Paris by the National Convention and France became a republic. I'm walking around the edge of the airfield on a, um, a tarmac road um, and it's overhung by oaks and the ground under my feet is liberally carpeted with acorns and they're brown and ripe. Do you remember the feeling of acorns under your feet? The way that they roll and slip and slip out of their shells. These are sessile acorns from a sessile oak because they're held close to the stems, they're not on their own little danglers. The other type of pendunculate um, and they do have little stems. I always remember it because pendunculate sounds a bit like dangle. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm trespassing now. But I'm trying to find the old airbase chapel. And I've had a tip off. So I'm poking around in quite young woodland. Everywhere there's the remains of these old, quite hastily built roads that are just breaking and cracking up, being eaten by weeds. Um, well, this is an old ruin. Breeze blocks. I think this is it. This is it. I think this is the old Airfield Chapel. Blimey. I mean, I might be wrong, but it's definitely the right age. Pheasant just ran in front of me. It's been taken over by ivy. And there's a young ash tree kind of breaking part of it apart. Wow. Trying to Think of all the prayers that were said here.
something really trite I could say here about nature returning and healing and everything becoming green and pretty again. But I don't think that's how healing works. I don't think healing is about erasing what happened. Healing is about learning to live with it. And making it part of who you are now in a way that feels safe. My mum died suddenly and in very difficult circumstances and I was in shock for quite a long time afterwards. I was in a strange country different from everyone around me. And coming out of that strange country was, I had very mixed feelings about. Because I didn't want to forget. I didn't want to move on. But neither did I want to be trapped there. What it took in the end was being able to incorporate everything that had happened and how I felt about it and to make it into part of my own narrative. To be able to tell the story without reliving the trauma. That's why talking can be so important. The right kind of talking with the right kind of people which often isn't the people who you experienced an event with. Talking isn't a magical cure-all by any means. But by being heard in the right way, we can sort our lives into a kind of coherence so that things belong to us and are safe again. For me, that's what healing was. So I'm looking at this building with its smashed windows. Corrugated iron. Ivy everywhere. Piles of rubble and rubbish outside. And I'm not thinking... That it's beautiful or picturesque or that everything's okay again but I am thinking it's part of the story of the war and the story of people's lives lives that were marked and scarred and were never the same again I'm not a churchgoer, but I love churches, and I go to church in my own way. What I love about them is the way they hold 
generations of village lives, village moments, births, marriages, deaths, village prayers, village breath in song. That is so important. You can hear the birch leaves rustling above me. And the breeze, gosh. Yes. This is still for its dereliction, a holy place. This week's poem is by Elizabeth Jennings. We were given one of her poems to study at school when I was 14 or 15. And I loved it so much, I went out and bought her collected poems. And I've loved her ever since. She's up there, somewhere in my top three for sure. She was part of what came to be called the movement, along with Philip Larkin and Kingsley Amis. And she's unjustly forgotten. She was a Roman Catholic, and she suffered periods of mental illness. But her lyric poetry remains, to me, some of the most moving I've ever read. In the original version of this podcast, this episode closed with the poem Into the Hour by Elizabeth Jennings. For copyright reasons, I can no longer bring you that poem, but I urge you to get hold of her collected poems and read it for yourself. It's about healing, and it does something miraculous. It heals. Thank you so much for joining me. See you next week.